start out with this. Let's say you pull into your driveway and find that your house is burning down. All right? And the question is, like, what would you run in? You got 60 seconds. By the way, you shouldn't run into your house, okay? Like, leave it alone. Let it burn, right? But uh, let's assume all your family members and all your dogs are safe. All the important stuff. <laughs> Do with that what you will, okay? So, uh, so the people and the dogs are safe. So what would you run in and grab? I thought about this question, and I thought, you know, like, for some of you, you'd grab money, you might grab photos, something like that. Uh, I thought about, would I save my motorcycle? No, it's old, cheap, and small. I let it burn, I'll take the insurance money, buy another one, right? Uh, you know what I'd grab? I'd go grab my technology. I'd grab my laptop, my iPad, and my phone. Like, that just shows what we value, because I'm like, if I have those, I can live, Right? Shows what you value. Now, I'm guessing if you're under 30, you probably grab technology too. Except if you're under 30, you already had your phone on you, didn't you, right? Like, so I get it, I get it, right? So, uh, but that's, it shows what we value. It shows the idea that we would actually run into a burning place to grab something of material value. It says something about us. And that'll come up in our passage today. We as a church are going through the Gospel of Luke and we come to Luke chapter 17. We have a long passage in front of us today, but we'll start out with just two verses. And here it is in Luke 17, verses 20 to 21. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he, obviously that's Jesus, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will you say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Now, this is actually a very insulting question to Jesus. Remember, Jesus is the king, and where the king goes, there's the kingdom. And so when you go up to Jesus and say, hey, where's the kingdom? Okay, it's like going up to a pro athlete and saying, hey, when are the good athletes going to get here? You get the, like, That's a little bit insulting, right? That's what they're saying to Jesus. But it's an understandable question from their context. You see, the Jews had a particular messianic expectation, and they had an expectation of eschatology. Now, I use those words to make you think I'm smart. Okay? But all eschatology means is the study of the end times. It's your theology and beliefs about what happens at the end of time when God wraps it all up. And what they thought is that what would happen is that the Messiah would come once. He would show up on the scene. He would kick Rome's butt out of there, set up God's kingdom on earth with the Jews on a throne right there. That's what they expected. And Jesus is claiming to be the Messiah, and they're like, hey, where's the kingdom? Where's the, when's the good stuff going to begin? What is going on here? And so Jesus responds by saying, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Now, kingdom is a really big concept in the Gospel of Luke. Luke's our author. He's talking about Jesus the whole time. Luke records Jesus talking about the kingdom 27 times. That's a big emphasis. Jesus is very concerned about the kingdom. And in this case, what he says is that the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Now, to our human, well, to our modern ears, what we hear in that is that the kingdom of God is inside of you. But that's actually colored, like some of you are like, yeah, exactly. No, 
unbiblical, sorry. All right? what, what, that's really colored by something called humanism, which thinks uh, that every human being is inherently on the inside good, and we just need to let the good out. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says that actually we stink, and, and what we need is Jesus to save us. Okay? And so in here, Jesus, the idea that Jesus is telling a bunch of unbelieving Pharisees, kingdom's just in your hearts. No. That, you read the rest of the story. Like, that is just not what he says to these people. Instead, what is he saying? He's saying the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Why? Because Jesus is standing right there. He's the king, and wherever the king is, there's the kingdom. And so there's Jesus. He's saying, the kingdom of God's right here, guys. I'm, here I am. Here I am. <laughs> should let you guys know, this morning is our 60th sermon in Luke. And we ain't near done. Somebody like, how long is this book? <laughs> we will be going on with Luke through 2020, not the whole year, but into 2020. If you want to know what the plan is after that, uh, when we're done with Luke, you know, we've already studied Acts. Luke wrote both Luke and Acts. When we're done with that, we as a church will have studied our way through 25%, one-fourth of the New Testament. I think that's awesome. All right? That's great. So I'm looking forward to that. <clears throat> Some people want to know, okay, what do we do after that? My intention is we will keep studying books of the New Testament. We'll sprinkle in some Old Testament. Some of you are like, hey, can we study Revelation? Here's my plan. Decades from now when I retire, I'm going to screw the next guy. Okay, I'm going to get right up to Revelation. I'm out, right? And he's got to deal with that, right? Because it is crazy stuff. That's the plan. In the meantime, what we're doing is we are marching through Luke. We're 60 sermons in. And all we're doing is staring at Jesus. We're staring at Jesus because he came and this changes everything. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus. We sang that. Like he came and he brought an upside down kingdom. Not the kind of worldly kingdom we expect. It wasn't a kingdom of self-righteousness and religion. It wasn't a kingdom where might makes right. It wasn't a kingdom where it's all about wealth and worldly power. That's not it. Instead, he's a great king and he has an amazing kingdom. And look at some of it with me. It's a kingdom of love and grace, and forgiveness, and justice for the oppressed. He, he's, Jesus is courageous. He's surprising. He is powerful. He's profound. He's wise. He brings the truth to us. There's humility. There's service. There's generosity. And yes, there's sacrifice. He's a gorgeous, amazing king, and it's an amazing kingdom. The king is right there, and therefore the kingdom is right there. Stare at Jesus. That's what we're doing 60 sermons into Luke. We are staring at Jesus and worshiping him. Now, when you look at that list, you might say, yeah, but pastor, uh, I know Christians who aren't like that. And, and you're talking about me, right? Because I, I'm, not, I'm not all like that. The point is Jesus is like that and therefore we stare at him and his kingdom is like that and it is awesome. Now a question comes up, well wait a minute, if the kingdom is already here, why is this world still so messed up? And it is. And, and that's because of this concept that we've shared with you before, already but not yet. Already but not yet. That's the kingdom of God. It's already, but not yet. It's kind of like now and later. 
Now, like, you remember now and laters? Like, unholy Starburst is what, the, right? Like, your great-grandmother somehow fused Starburst with hard candy. It's, it's a pump fake. I hate those things. That's not what I'm talking about. But, but it's already, but not yet. We live in between the first coming of Jesus and his second coming, that he's coming back. And we live in this in-between. The first coming is very much what Luke is covering. We're staring at the already part. Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees. And he's saying where the king is, there the kingdom is already. Now in between the first coming and the second coming, what we have is the church age. And the, to the degree that we represent Jesus, we extend his kingdom. To the degree that we don't represent Jesus, we don't spread his kingdom. But that's the already part. But we don't yet see the full kingdom. That's the not yet part. It's still messed up down here, including us Christians. And we're waiting the second coming of the Lord. So we're in between the first and the second coming already, but not yet. So what's going to happen next is Jesus is going to turn to his disciples and he's going to talk to them about his second coming. And that's where we get into some wonderful eschatology, a word you all now know. Perfect. Let's look at it. It's a long passage, uh, but let's look at it together. It continues in verse 22. And he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let not the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let not the one who is in the field, let that one not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Okay, catch that? Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Okay, that is like wild stuff, right? Uh, there is a lot of end times about the second coming. There's a lot of not yet stuff packed right into there. And a lot of you probably were caught at this last paragraph here when Jesus talks about like two people sleeping and two women grinding grain and one's taken and one's left. And your mind, some of you, if you know about this part of eschatology, you might have thought about the rapture. 
All right? Now, uh, that, that's this taken part there. And, and honestly, the, this rapture idea is really in your brain so much and you think about that because some of you have unfortunately watched or read the Left Behind series. Uh, God bless you people. Uh, that is, uh, this whole idea is really good for pranks, but not as good for, uh, uh, for theology. Let me explain what I mean by pranks. I watched a video uh, earlier this week it's four minutes long. I wish I had time to show it to you. I'll probably push it out on social media later. Uh, what they did is there was this girl that's all into the left behind stuff, and, and she's a Christian. So this entire coffee shop of people were in on the prank. They tricked her out. They all laid clothes on there and then all disappeared. She came back in. She was quite certain the rapture happened. She was left behind. She ends up in tears. Like it's like funny and like tragic at the same time, right? You know, like, and so it's, it's, but it's a beautiful thing. My point is like this left behind stuff is good for pranks, not as good for theology. I really, really what I want to do is do that prank for Pastor Austin. Unfortunately, he's in here. Now he knows it's coming. So it uh, won't work. won't work. <clears throat> if you're into all this eschatology stuff and you're curious, I will tell you my position is one called amillennialism. All of our pastors lean in that direction. But you'll notice you won't find that in our doctrinal statement. That's intentional. I know of some churches where uh, what they do is they have like their premillennial statement in their doctrinal statement. They have pastors on their staff team that disagree with that. Now you have pastors that don't agree with the church's theology. And yet, like that's, I'm like, that, that's the secondary thing. Okay, that doesn't need to be in there. We can be, you know what I want to do with this? I want to have humility. So like if you don't know about the rapture and you don't know about amillennialism, you're fine. I want to hold these things with humility. Here's why. I want to be very dogmatic about the past. I want to be very open-handed about the future. When we talk about Christ's first coming, I'll go to the mat for that. I know what happened. I've read it. When we talk about his second coming, those are things that are a little bit less clear, where scholars disagree over these things. And prophecy often surprises us. Like when you think about it, like the Jews had a ton of prophecies about the Messiah in the Old Testament, and they knew exactly what it was going to be like. Oops. Right? And so now here we are, we get all this prophecy about the Messiah, and we know exactly, oh, that might, might trip us up. See, I want to hold my eschatology loosely. So if you're like one of those people where, no, that's the most important thing. We got to interpret everything through that. I would just say, stop it. Stop it. That's just not cool. We're going to be very humble about our eschatology. Some things are unclear. Some things are very, very clear. Like as far as unclear, if you look at the end of this passage right here, where, Lord, he said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Now, how many of you read that and went, oh, now I know exactly what's going to happen? <laughs> because like, like some of these things are not as clear, right? But there are some things in our passage that are crystal clear, and I want to point those out to you this morning. The first one is this, that the second coming of Christ is unstoppable. It's unstoppable. Jesus is saying it's clearly going to happen. The king of heaven just told us he's coming back. You can take that to the bank. It is going to happen. It is unstoppable. Secondly, the second coming of Christ will be unmistakable. He talked about lightning that flashes from one part of the sky to the other. Now, when lightning does that, nobody goes, was that lightning? Right? Noatic flood came on, knowing all those people. Nobody went, is this a flood? 
right? Fire rains down and sulfur on Sodom. They're not going, I wonder if this is the judgment of God. Like, no, it's unmistakable. They know exactly what is going on. So at the second coming of Christ, you won't have to guess. It will be very, very clear. And if you have to guess, if you're like, is that him? No, that's not him. Okay? And that's what Jesus is saying. Don't go out after false messiahs. Like after I ascend before my second coming, people are going to come back and they're going to they're come around they're going to go, hey, here's the Messiah. Like if I stand up and I go, hey guys, by the way, I'm the Messiah. This is the second coming. Huh? No, 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 believe me. Just have faith. Look, if you just have to have faith, that ain't Jesus. Right? Like you're going to know for clear. It will be unmistakable. See, the first coming was veiled. The second coming will be unmistakable. If you're not sure, that ain't Jesus. Thirdly, the second coming will be very sudden. Lightning is sudden. People who were just carrying on with normal life and the flood came upon them, that was sudden. Fire and sulfur raining down, that was sudden. People were taken, that was sudden. Now, it's not without warning, though. There was a warning, but they were just distracted by everyday life. It says they were eating and drinking. That's not sin. That's not evil. They were just carrying on with everyday normal life, but they got distracted by normal life, and they forgot to plan for eternal life. And so we get so caught up with groceries, don't we? And laundry, mowing the lawn, projects on the house, running the kids all over the place, catching up on email. None of that's bad stuff. Pastor Mark Driscoll said that most people spend more time planning for their vacation than they do planning for eternity. Can I just give you a hint? Eternity's longer. Right? Like, shouldn't we plan a little bit more for that one? Are you ready? Like, if the second coming of Christ was today, will you be ready to meet your God? Let's get ready for that. Because it's unstoppable, it's unmistakable, and it will be sudden. Like when Jesus comes back, at that point it's too late, it's final. Like when there's this haunting sentence in the Old Testament that God sealed up the ark. And in that moment, people were sealed into salvation. At the same time, people were sealed out. When the flood comes, it's too late. When Jesus comes back, it's too late. We want to be ready. Now that hints then at the fourth thing that we know clearly about the second coming, and that is that it divides the saved from the unsaved, right? So at the flood, there was division. I just talked about that. Like uh, when fire and sulfur rained down on Sodom, they were clearly saved and they were unsaved. When people are taken, they are saved and unsaved. Actually, scholars debate that part of it, like uh, the, the taken ones, were those the ones going to the good place or the bad place? Because the left behind, you think good. But then there's that whole part with the corpses and the vultures and all that. So there, there's a debate about that. What nobody debates is there is a separation. There is a division. There is a sorting going on. What sorts the saved from the unsaved? Here's an interesting part of our passage. If you go back and read the story of Noah, if you go back and read the story of Lot, oh my goodness, those were very stained Men, they are not saved by self-righteousness. What happened is they didn't hold on to the things of the world. They didn't get distracted by the things of the world. They put their faith in God as their Savior, and they experienced grace. That's what saved them. Not themselves, God himself. 
but the second coming will divide. All right, fifth and last thing I want to make sure you catch that is clear is that the second coming will not be like the first coming. They will be very, very different. In fact, look at these two lists, if you will. The first coming, Jesus came in humility. Second coming, he will come in glory. He came in meekness. He will come back in power. He came and it was veiled. He'll come back and it will be unmistakable. He came and he was mockable. Not that we should mock him, but that we could mock him. That's crazy. When he comes back, nobody's mocking him. He will be awe-inspiring. When he came the first time, he came in suffering. When he comes back next time, it will be in triumph. His second coming will be remarkably different. He will be a conquering king, victorious, no negotiating, unconditional surrender, and for some it will be terrifying. And we're not used to kind of thinking of Jesus like that. That sounds strange to us. And the reason why is we're used to thinking of Jesus only on the left-hand column there. We don't think of Jesus on the right-hand column. But, wow, that's the way it's going to be. When you understand, and this is so important, when you understand who he is, like a bigger picture, like what you need to do is maybe read some of the descriptions of Jesus that you find in the book of Revelation. Your next pastor, decades from now, will do that with you, okay? So, so you'll read, or, or you know what? In our passage, Jesus kept referring to himself as the son of man. That is a very technical title. That is a reference to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14. Go back, read it. You will see second column Jesus. And it's really important, and the reason why is because when you see who the Son of Man is, when you understand that he is like fully God in the flesh, then all of a sudden his first coming, are you kidding me? That guy on the right up there, he came as a babe born in a manger to an unwed teenage mother? He's the one that let us spit on him? He's the one that let us mock him, beat him? Pin him to a cross? He's the one that washed our nasty feet? Are you kidding me? We've got to get a lens of the second coming to understand the incredible grace in the first coming. So here are some very clear things then about his second coming. It will be unstoppable, unmistakable, sudden, will divide the saved from the unsaved, and it will be very different from his first coming. All right. Now there's a bunch of eschatology. You're welcome. Right? Last week was so emotional. I'm back. <laughs> so, so there you go. Now, uh, what I want to do is talk about how do we apply this to our lives? It's kind of so what? Well, the first thing I want you to do is this. Don't speculate, but participate. Okay? Instead of using this eschatology stuff to speculate about the future, we are supposed to use it to participate in the kingdom now. Some of you really get into this eschatology stuff, and you've got timelines, and you've got charts, and you think this is the most important thing, and I think you might have missed it. Let me, let me say this clearly. It's not about charts. It's about hearts. That's what this is about. It's not about charts. It's about heart. It's not about speculation on the future. It's about participation in the kingdom now. After all, God wants sincere hearts, not 
technically correct eschatology. Like some of you think your job is to use these veiled prophecies that are opaque to scholars and to guess correctly, and if not, God's going to ding you based on a technicality. It's not the way it works. He's looking for sincere hearts. After all, if it's all about speculation for the future, think about this. That means that God has put all these prophecies in the Old and New Testament, and they are completely irrelevant to thousands of generations of followers of God, except for that one last generation when Jesus comes back. That sound right to you? Or does actually those revelation about the second coming, does it have to do with all the generations, even us right now? It's not speculation for the future, it's participation right now. So, this word of God we have today has to mean something for us right now. It's not charts, it's hearts. It's not speculation, it's participation. Prophecy is not just for the future, prophecy is for now. We gotta live it out. So how do we live it out? Well, the, the second thing I want to say is this. Don't look back. Don't look back. If you're out in the field working or you're up on the housetop hanging out, it's not time to go run into your house and try to grab material possessions. Don't do that. Don't look back. Like sometimes this happens, right, like where there's a forest fire consuming neighborhoods or floods coming, and we see videos of people who ran back into their house to grab things like a cell phone, and they ended up dead. And that's not so, and Jesus is saying, don't look back to smaller things and miss the bigger thing like the kingdom. Don't look back. And the way he expresses that is he says, remember Lot's wife. That hangs there in the air. That reverberates. Remember Lot's wife. Some of you are like, what? You're like a minion. What? Because <laughs> like, you're probably more familiar with the Noah story than the Lot story. So let me just give you a thumbnail sketch, okay? God's really interacting a lot with Abraham at that time as kind of his dude on earth, right? And uh, Abraham finds out that there's a city called Sodom that's way wicked, and for justice, God has to judge it and destroy it. But the problem is that Abraham's nephew, Lot, lives in Sodom with his family. And so Abraham does this little bargaining thing with God. I'm glossing details, but you'll get the idea. So he bargains with God, hey, can I get Lot and his family out? God says, yes. So they're able to save Lot and his family and get them out. Now, as they're getting out of Sodom, the, the fire and sulfur starts to rain. And the, the word to them is, don't look back. Don't long back. Don't look back towards that old stuff. Look forward to the new. Don't look back. And Lot's wife turns around and looks back. And she gets turned into a pillar of salt. It destroys her. Instead of looking forward to the king, looking forward to the kingdom, she looks back at the old worldly life. And it destroys her. So here is Jesus saying, remember Lot's wife. Don't look back. Jesus has saved us as the children of God out of this world and called us toward the kingdom. And so here we're on the journey, and he's saying, don't look back. We're tempted to look back, don't we? We not only look back, we long back. Sometimes we not only long back, we dabble. We go back. Remember Lot's wife. Don't look back. Why, why, why do we sometimes long for the things of this world? Sometimes it's not just worldly possessions, sometimes it's sin. But folks, think about it. 
This is a world of brokenness and fallenness and shame and depravity and pain and disease and death. And we're looking back at that going, man, I just wish I could go back there. That place is so sweet. The children of Israel did this. Some of you know that Old Testament story. When they're saved out of slavery in Egypt, they're on the path to the promised land. Things get a little bit difficult because they're in between. Like, there's the already, not yet. They're in between, and they say, can we just go back to slavery? What? Could you imagine if one of our African-American brothers or sisters in our midst said, hey, you know what, could we just go back to slavery? That is so insane, it's offensive to say. That's crazy. Listen, check this. That's exactly what we do. Jesus has saved us from slavery to sin and destruction, and it's terrible. And we're going towards the kingdom, and we're longing back, oh man, can we just go back to slavery? Are you serious? Why do we long back? We shouldn't. Let me help you maybe understand it this way. My wife, Shannon, is a great cook. Not grilled cheese, I told you that, but... Otherwise, an amazing, amazing cook. She's been making a dish lately called egg roll in a bowl. Oh, it's so good. It not only tastes good, but when she starts cooking that thing, well, I can smell it from the driveway. Like I get home around six o'clock and I can smell that. Oh, I know dinner's coming. I know it is gonna be really, really good. My mouth just starts to water. I start longing for dinner. You know what I don't do in that moment? I don't think about my lunch. And the reason why is because Pastor Rick's 49, it's an uphill climb. So I eat salads for lunch every day, okay? So I'm smelling this egg roll in a bowl. I'm not thinking about my salad anymore. I'm looking forward to dinner. You see that? That's the already I got a sniff, now the not yet of the dinner. Now, so what happened is Jesus came, and when he came already, he gave us a sniff. He gave us a whiff of the kingdom of God. And what we ought to be doing is salivating, looking forward to it. It's going to be feast. I cannot wait. I do not want to start looking back, longing back to my salad lunch of worldliness. And yes, I did just connect vegetarianism with the old life, okay? I'm just saying. I do occurred to me during the first service, so there it is. But the point is, don't look back on a worldly life, on a crappy lunch when there's a great feast coming toward us. Why do we do that? But we do. Listen, do you long for the kingdom of God? Do you long for eternity? I mean, think about this. All the pain, all the sin, all the shame, all the temptation, it's done. All the disease, all the depravity, it's done. Some of you use walkers and wheelchairs. There are none in heaven. That's done. Disabilities, gone. I mean, think about that time, right? I long, you know what I look forward to? My own sin and temptation that I have to wrestle with every day, done. Oh, so we have a lot of addicts in our midst. You know, it's one day at a time, right? You have to fight that battle every day. There's a day coming. And you're not going to have to fight that anymore. I long for that. Look forward to that. All of us have something like that that we've got to look forward to the second coming. We've got to look forward to it. So, so don't look back. So here's, here's, uh, here's one last thought. Where you look is where you steer. 
I've, I've shared this with you before, I think. When, when I taught my son Caleb to drive when he was 16, and I taught him that when your hand's on the wheel, that, that where you tend to look, you tend to pull. Like, so you, you steer where you look, right? And so if you're going along, and the cute girl goes jogging down the road, and you, look, you tend to steer, you run over her, she's no longer cute, right? So, so don't do that. So where you look is where you steer, right? If you want to look back, Look back at Christ. Stare at his first coming. Be in love with Jesus. Stare at the king. If you want to look, look forward to his second coming. But Lord, have mercy. Do not look back at a life of worldliness. Because where you look is where you will steer. And so what we want to do is stare at our king. Stare at his kingdom. Love it. Worship it. And we want to spread it as much as we can. Because that's where we're steering. And I hope you do that this week. In fact, I want to pray for that. Bow your heads with me. Father, sometimes these passages that you chose to put in your holy word are confusing to us. We want to acknowledge before you right now that you are not calling us to charts but to hearts. Not speculation but participation. That prophecy is for now. And would you help us apply this, that we would be in love with Jesus. The first coming, the second coming, the king is the king. And we would love his kingdom and we would be staring at him and steering toward him all week long. Could you lead us to spread your kingdom? And I pray for that in Christ's name. Amen.